0: Hey, Allison here. Before we start the episode, I want to acknowledge what's happening at the time that this episode was released in June 2020. We're in the midst of the COVID 19 pandemic, which has caused widespread suffering and the death of over 100,000 people in the US, a pandemic that's disproportionately affecting people of color. Not only that, but we're living in a time of enormous social upheaval, triggered by the most recent display of police brutality that resulted in the death of George Floyd in the streets of Minneapolis. Our communities are grappling with tremendous grief and pushing for change in response to centuries of systemic racism. We at Genome Insider hope that you're taking care of yourselves and each other in this
1: extraordinary time. The Department
0: of Energy's Joint Genome Institute. Kind of, it, it took the resources from
2: JGI to make this possible. Innovation in
1: the field of genomics.
2: How living things transform our world, world, world.
0: Hey, I'm Allison Takamura, and this is Genome Insider, a podcast of the U.S. Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute, or JGI. Today, my colleague and fellow science communicator, Massey Ballin, will be joining me to help tell this story. Welcome, Massey. Thanks, Allison. And hi, everyone.
2: So, what genome science story are we going to talk about
0: today? We are talking about the mysterious life of short plants. What exactly are short plants? Well, as the name suggests, they're super short. And being five feet tall, I'm one to talk. But think mosses, they only get a few millimeters off the ground. And that's because they don't have a vascular system, which is like our circulatory system. It moves fluids and nutrients around. A vascular system is what has enabled other plants to get so tall. For example, the poplar tree, the first tree to ever have its genome sequenced.
2: Okay, and why are we talking about shark plants?
0: To answer that, let's go back 470 million years ago when ancestral plants, which were also very short, came out of the ocean onto land. All of a sudden, they're in this new environment and their genes need to adapt.
1: Uh, you know, as, as they moved onto land, they repurposed a lot of these things that were already kind of floating around in, the, in, the, in their algal ancestors and then made new use of them. And many times that involved uh, making several new copies and then, and then allowing those new copies to do new functional things.
0: That was Jeremy Schmutz, the head of the JGI's plant program.
2: And Jeremy's saying that plants on land evolved new adaptations by diversifying their genes, right?
0: Yes. And because scientists want to understand what plant genes do, it would be nice to be able to start with that one gene before it diversified.
2: Oh yeah, that does sound way easier. Right?
0: It's basically like wanting to go back in time. For example, imagine you're a scientist studying switchgrass, a potential biofuel feedstock that the Department of Energy is working on. And you're trying to figure out what this one weird gene does. But there are 30
1: copies of this gene. But as you start stepping back into time, you get, you know, that goes down to 15, then that goes down to five, then that goes down to three. And these short plants, you know, there might be only one copy of that, or two copies of that.
0: So studying today's short plants like mosses...
1: Gives us a way of um, looking at, to see what the ancestral forms of these uh, proteins really were. That's kind of the goal of comparative genomics, is to connect throughout the tree, these genes, and that allows us to flow functional knowledge of how, what these do, one way or the other.
2: So does that mean that mosses have genomes that are frozen in time?
0: No, it doesn't. And this is important to clear up. Mosses have been evolving for just as long as other modern plants. So it's not like they have any genes that would be exactly the same as their ancestors. But because short plants don't have a vascular system, and neither did early plant ancestors, scientists do think some genes might be more similar between the two. And that can help us deduce gene function across plants. So today's story focuses on the quest to elucidate one moss's genome. You ready, Massey? Let's do this. My name is Sarah Carey
3: and I am a PhD student at the University of Florida.
4: My name is Stuart McDaniel, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Florida in the biology department.
0: Sarah and Stuart study the moss ceratodon purpureus. Its name means purple and horn-shaped because when it reproduces, it grows these stalks with horn-like purple capsules on the ends. It's visually striking.
3: If you look at it with the sun shining through it, it's this bright, bright purple-red color.
0: Ceratidon purpureus is also known as fire moss.
4: One of the reasons it's called fire moss is because after a forest fire happens, uh, this is one of the, the very first plants to recolonize the, the burned um, ash. It, it will cover whole acres and you'll see nothing but, but this moss and um, a couple other species of so-called fire mosses.
0: This fire moss is cosmopolitan.
3: So we have lines from Alaska. Um, all over North America. We have ones from Ecuador, southern parts of Chile, Antarctica. This species of moss grows
0: everywhere. It even grows on disturbed sites, like next to mines, around heavy metals, and even around houses. It grows on rooftops. So some of the
3: isolates we have in the lab are ones from one of our colleagues. He just reached outside of his office window and just grabbed a bunch of it and sent it to us. And that's one of our populations we've been
0: studying. JGI scientist Jeremy thinks he might actually have an infestation of fire moss, though it could be a close relative. He says they're hard to tell apart. He showed us his backyard on our video call.
1: Here you go. Yeah, you can see it's invading, and it's really kind of really annoying.
0: I thought it looked great. It added texture.
1: I think this is actually sporing here, putting up their structures. And I think this is like, uh, you know, this is our sexy moss time here.
0: Sexy moss time! Yes, Massey. Jeremy's talking about the purple stalks with the horn-shaped capsules I mentioned earlier. Getting back to Sarah and Stuart, they're evolutionary biologists, and I asked Sarah why she chose to study mosses. I think because people don't really think that much about plants, it, it
3: kind of makes me care about it a little bit more. There's so much of an animal bias in the field we kind of work in that we're the people who are like, no, plants are cool too.
4: Sarah's a ferocious defender of the underdog.
3: I gotta agree with Sarah. Plants
2: are cool. They can make their own food, they are food, and some are potential bioenergy sources.
0: Yeah, and one way we can better understand how plants do all those things is by sequencing short plants, including fire moss. Sarah and Stuart are especially interested in the fire moss's sex chromosomes. These are the DNA molecules that encode the sex-specific genes. If you're a male moss, you get one set of genes. If you're a female moss, you get this other set of genes. We don't know exactly what those genes will turn out to be, but we can expect to find genes that are related to the way mosses reproduce. For example, mosses send out mysterious volatile compounds to attract critters that are like pollinators. The same way flowers do? Yes, really similar. Only mosses don't have flowers. That's a separate group of plants called the angiosperms. And instead of attracting insects like bees, mosses attract… shorter animals? What? They're microarthropods. These wee animals with exoskeletons are the size of a pencil tip, and they can be found trundling along in a moss. We're talking moss mites, springtails, tardigrades? No! Tardigrades, as in the adorable water bears? I've seen those electron microscopy images. <laughs> Me too. We'll link them in the show notes. So, these microarthropods are the sex shuttles for the mosses. They can visit a male moss, get some sperm on them, and then take it over to a female moss.
2: Sperm delivery!
0: Yeah, and since analogous to the way flowering plants interact with pollinators, maybe there's a shared genetic mechanism.
2: Okay, and so you're saying that that could be encoded in the moss sex chromosomes?
0: Yeah. So Sarah and Stewart got their sequences? Eventually, but it was a rough road, as Stewart can attest to.
4: Part of the issue was I was extremely naive about how challenging sequencing a genome was, in particular the sex chromosomes. And I had uh, naive ideas that using classical genetics or relatively simple population genetic approaches that we would relatively easily be able to identify uh, chunks of the genome that were sex-linked. And that turned out to be just far more challenging than I had anticipated.
2: Wow. Can we just stop here for a minute and just talk about Stewart's comments? Sure. I mean, here at the JGI, we now routinely generate billions of bases a day, right? And it feels like genome sequences are being announced every day. So, sequencing just the sex chromosomes of a plant? A short plant, like Stewart said, should have been easy,
0: right? Yeah, you think, Massey. But sex chromosomes, in general, are tough nuts to crack. They have lots of repeated sequences, which makes it confusing to figure out how to line up the pieces in the right order after you sequence them.
2: Oh, so how did Sarah Stewart and the JGI get this
0: done? Well, they needed time and perseverance. They started back in 2010, and they tried a litany of technologies. These included 454 sequencing, making bacterial artificial chromosome library, and long read sequencing with PacBio technology. But it wasn't until Hi C sequencing came around that they were able to claim victory. Hi C? Like the drink? Yep, just like that. H I capital C. But this has nothing to do with the drink, I promise. It's just a really cool technology that lets you predict which pieces of DNA are near each other in physical space, like on the same chromosome. Oh, okay. And that would help you to order the pieces, even if they had repeats. Exactly. Using Hi-C technology, the sex chromosomes were finally sequenced. But before we get to what Sarah and Stuart found, let's just quickly reflect on how this kind of science gets done. It's a team effort, right? And Sarah and Stuart and their collaborators worked really closely with JGI.
4: Our experience with JGI has been uh, fantastic. JGI said, we would like to do this next thing that we think is, is going to solve the problem and send us this kind of DNA.
3: I've been the person who's often grown the tissue or extracted the DNA or extracted the RNA and sent it to them. And, and so... What I did was I, I had these nucleotides and I'd send it to JGI and what I'd get back is an extremely high quality resource to be able to address these, these questions that we have in our lab. they basically just magic together everything that I want to use to study the system. <laughs> but...
0: <laughs> I love that JGI magics everything together. It probably wasn't actually magic, though. Sarah and Stuart worked with Jeremy, JGI's plant program head.
4: Jeremy Schmutz. Has been a, a terrific resource and very much a straight shooter. And I really appreciate that he tells us when something's not going to work and then he, he makes things work that we didn't think would work.
0: Sarah and Stuart also worked with a member of Jeremy's team, genomics researcher Jerry Jenkins.
4: Jerry Jenkins has been a tremendous resource as well and actually sort of a secret advocate for us, I think, although I don't have confirmation of that.
0: Ooh, how mysterious. <laughs> Oh, totally. So JGI completed the sequencing, and Sarah and Stuart found in the Moss's sex chromosomes some nifty surprises. For example, the sex chromosomes were massive, which is part of what had made sequencing them so challenging. The sex chromosomes are a third of the genome. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. Wait, the sex chromosomes are there. I, so are there only three chromosomes? Is that no? There's thirteen. There's thirteen. But yeah. they, do you mean that they're they're just really big? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Oh yeah, they're the biggest chromosome in both males and females. Sarah and Stewart estimate each of the fire moss's sex chromosomes has 3,400 genes. Animal Y chromosomes, on the other hand, have less than 100 genes. That 34x difference suggests that the moss's sex chromosomes could have a much bigger influence on their biology than we're used to. So that
2: 34x difference is
0: unexpected. Yeah, right? And the sex chromosomes are also full of transposons, or jumping DNA. These are stretches of DNA that can copy and insert themselves around the genome. Does anyone know why there are so many transposons? Yeah, scientists think it's because of sex chromosome biology. Sex chromosomes don't have a partner chromosome to recombine with and shuffle the DNA around. For example, let's say you have a really helpful gene next to a transposon that's more like dead weight. Because you don't have recombination between chromosomes, you can't break up genetic combinations like this. So the transposon gets to stay just because it's cozied up next to this really helpful gene. That's how DNA can get clogged with repeats.
3: And in fact, in our analyses, we found that there are about 80% repeats on the sex chromosomes. And so that's one of the large reasons why it was so hard to
0: sequence it without some of these longer-read technologies is lots and lots of repeats on there. Now Sarah Stewart and their team can compare the fire mosh genome to the sequenced genomes of other plants and thus refine our understanding of how plants have evolved. We're taking a snapshot and and making these
3: comparisons of effectively what's happened in the past. Mm -hmm. We don't, at the moment anyway, work on kind of making evolution happen within the lab. We look at what has happened from nature. These are all collected from the wild, and and we see what has driven changes in in the genome.
0: Yeah. I hadn't realized um, how similar it is to archaeology and paleontology, you know, you have these snapshots and then you try to infer this rich past. Oh yeah, that's entirely true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in evolution,
3: we, we, from like a phylogenetic perspective, we, we can see when something arose. So, so when did, when did mosses arrive on, on land? When did we start having flowers and, instead? And when did the volatiles, or the, the odors and mosses, arrive to attract microarthropods? And so, yes, it's snapshot back into the past. It's almost like Sarah and
2: Stewart are history detectives. They're looking for clues that made the genome what it is now. So what are they finding?
3: We've been finding that moss sex chromosomes are really, really old. The oldest genes that we have suggest at least 300 million years ago these arose and in mosses, which is, it's really cool.
0: (laughs) For comparison, Massey, that means fire mosses' sex chromosomes are 290 million years older than the oldest sex chromosomes in flowering plants. Mosses have had so much longer to accumulate genes that help them reproduce. Insights from those genes could ultimately help scientists improve plant breeding programs. Of course, before we get there, there's still a crucial next step. And now that we
3: have these awesome genomic resources, the next thing is to actually see what these things do. So even if genes are annotated, in a lot of cases, we don't actually know what they do. If we take this gene and we knock it out of the species, what what happens? and particularly on the evolution of the sex chromosomes, and, and saying, what happens if I take it out, or if I swap it, this gene copy from males to females? The sequencing kind of opens up the ability to then start doing that functional work. What do these genes really do?
0: One of those functions or attributes that Sarah and Stuart will be looking at more closely is that perfume that fire moss uses to attract microarthropods, like we talked about earlier. And maybe uncovering those genes will shed light on the sex lives of other plants.
2: Yeah, Allison. And all of our data are publicly available for free on our plant portal, Phytosome. That means researchers around the world can look at this fire moss genome and compare it to their genomes of interest. And maybe, Allison, just maybe, they can uncover genes to improve bioenergy
0: feedstocks. Yeah. I think it's amazing that deciphering a tiny genetic blueprint in one very short plant can have an impact on our understanding of the way all plants work. This episode was directed by me, Alison Takamura with production help from me, Massey Vallon. Thanks, Massey. David Gilbert helped edit the show. Genome Insider is a production of the Joint Genome Institute, a user facility of the US Department of Energy, Office of Science. And we're located at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in beautiful Berkeley, California.
2: Thanks to our guests, Sarah Carey, Stuart McDaniel, and Jeremy Schmutz for sharing their research.
0: If you enjoyed the podcast and want to help others find us, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question or want to give us feedback, tweet us at JGI or record a voice memo and email us at jgi-coms at lbl.gov. That's JGI-C-O-M-M-S at lbl.gov. Check out our website
2: for a transcript of this episode and a screenshot of Jeremy's sexy backyard moss.
0: And because we're a user facility, if you're interested in partnering with us, we want to hear from you. We have projects in genome sequencing, synthesis, transcriptomics, metabolomics, and natural products in plants, fungi, algae, and microorganisms. If you want to collaborate, let us know.
2: Find out more at jgi.doe.gov forward slash user dash programs.
0: And if you're interested in hearing about cutting-edge research in secondary metabolites, also known as natural products, then check out JGI's other podcast, Natural Prodcast. It's hosted by Dan Yudwari and me. That's it for now. See you next time.